This is Vicki Iden and Matthew Thompson with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. If you've been enjoying the relative peace and quiet that comes outside of election season, well, enjoy it now because the 2024 election is heating up. Senator Tammy Baldwin, running for re-election to the U.S. Senate in fall 2024, is out with a new campaign financing report. So far, her campaign says she raised the most money at this time in a Senate contest, coming in at $3.2 million in the second quarter of 2023. In total, Baldwin has raised more than $5.3 million since the end of her last campaign. And that's forecasting a high-profile battle as the Democratic senator campaigns to hang on to her seat in this battleground state. No GOP candidate has formally announced that they'll run, but Congressman Tom Tiffany from northeastern Wisconsin and multimillionaire realtor Eric Hovde has signaled that they might. The state's health department has introduced a new pilot program intended to help adults live independently at home without needing to seek institutional care. The program, using federal pandemic funds, gives upwards of $7,000 in one-time funding for eligible residents, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. That money can be used for things like installing a ramp, revamping a bathroom or vehicle, installing high-speed internet, or buying hearing aids. It can also be used for limited personal care or legal services. The pilot program is being rolled out for residents in 16 Wisconsin counties, including Dane County. Applicants must earn less than 300% of the federal poverty level, among other criteria. You can enroll in the program through your local Aging and Disability Resource Center. Local nonprofit Freedom Inc. gave away 400 air purifiers and over 1,295 masks today to help people breathe cleaner air after last week's poor air quality conditions. The group also provided information and instructions to people on how to stay safe during future air quality alerts, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The group castigated government leaders for not taking more action to protect residents during last week's unhealthy air events. While the city of Madison celebrated the 4th of July last night with fireworks, the city's fire department stayed busy putting out fires from some of those celebrations. WKOW reports that the fire department responded to seven fires resulting from fireworks last night. Those fires were all minor, mostly occurring in garbage cans and small patches of grass. The first fire was reported just before 9.30 yesterday morning, with the last reported fire happening just after midnight last night. And now, on to today's top stories. Budget season is finally over after Governor Evers signed the state's two-year budget today. While the final product is vastly different from the one he proposed months ago, Evers' veto pen was busy bringing major changes to the Republican-authored budget. War producer Nate Wedgehout was more, has more. Governor Tony Evers officially signed the 2023-2025 budget today, surrounded by over 100 people in a small conference room in the state capitol. 
That budget includes over 50 line-item vetoes to Republican proposals, with the governor restoring some funding to the UW system and removing tax cuts for top earners. The budget signed today is vastly different from that proposed by Evers in January and is the result of months of debates and cuts from the GOP-led Budget Writing Committee. That committee cut over 500 items from Evers' proposed budget in May, removing policies like Medicaid expansion, child care funding, and medical marijuana. But now it was Evers' turn to remove items from the budget. He says that while some people urged him to veto the entire budget, sending it back to the legislature, this budget was too important to reject outright. Vetoing this entire budget would mean abandoning priorities and ideas that I've spent four years advocating for. It would mean leaving schools and communities in a lurch after rightfully securing historic increases for the first time in years. It would mean forging the first Republican effort to address PFAS after years of inaction at this budget, and this budget includes $125 million to address and prevent PFAS contamination. Evers was only allowed to remove items from the legislature's package using his line item veto power. Evers doesn't have the power to add policies to the legislature's proposal and could not add funding back in. One of the largest changes to the budget came in increasing the per-pupil revenue limits for public schools. In the Republican-authored bill, the per-pupil revenue limit would increase by $325 each year through 2025. Evers did not change the amount that schools could raise, but extended that timeline essentially in perpetuity, or at least for the next 400 years. He says that the move will give public schools predictability into how much money they will receive each year. The budget also includes several other provisions to help public schools across the state. This budget also provides $50 million to improve reading and literacy outcomes for K-12 students and $30 million over the biennium to continue to support school-based mental health services statewide. It's a year of mental health, folks. Evers's veto targets higher education as well, removing a provision mandating that the UW system eliminate all positions related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, initiatives. But while the mandate to rid the system of DEI was removed from the budget, Evers was not able to veto the budget cuts to go along with it, totaling around $32 million. That means that the system will now have to make those cuts somewhere, but where those cuts will come from will now be decided by the UW Board of Regents and not the Republican-led legislature. Evers says that these cuts will have adverse effects on workforce development in Wisconsin. Republicans' decision to prolong their decade-long war on higher education by fa failing to provide meaningful investments in, the, in our University of Wisconsin system and our technical colleges is short-sighted, misguided, and wrong for the workforce, wrong for our economy and our state. Another major change to the budget is the removal of income tax cuts for the state's top earners. Under the Republican-authored budget, Wisconsin's four income tax brackets would be merged into just three brackets. While all three of those brackets would see some tax breaks, the biggest cuts would go to the state's top earners. 
Evers's budget returns the fourth tax bracket to the state's tax equation and removes the tax cuts for the top two brackets. His veto retains the tax cuts for the bottom two tax brackets, which amounts to a total tax cut of around $175 million, significantly less than the $3.5 billion under the Republican proposed plan. Evers says that the state's highest earners aren't the ones who need help the most. Using my broad veto authority, I'm doing what I can to ensure that tax relief goes to working families who need help affording rising costs, not the wealthiest taxpayers in Wisconsin. Evers's veto pen also goes after anti-LGBTQ provisions in the budget, and the bill submitted by Republicans, Medicaid would not be able to be used to pay for puberty blockers or gender-affirming surgery. Evers removed this provision, saying that reducing access to gender-affirming care would only magnify the inequities and health outcomes already faced by the LGBTQ community. One provision not included in the budget is a significant increase in child care. Democratic lawmakers and child care providers called for Republicans to continue to fund the Child Care Counts program, which utilized federal funds to help child care centers to stay open during the pandemic. Republicans cut nearly all of that funding out of the budget, despite estimates that 60 percent of child care providers would have to raise tuition rates in order to stay open without that funding. Last week, the governor called on the Joint Finance Committee to accept the final portion of federal funding to keep child care counts running until the end of the year. While that money was included in the budget signed today, that program will come to an end once that funding runs out. Evers says that while it wasn't included in the final budget, the legislature can't simply lay the issue to rest. The legislature must make substantial investments necessary to stabilize our state's child care industry and ensure child care is affordable and accessible so that we can keep parents in our workforce. Evers signed the biennial budget today, but not without harsh criticism for his Republican colleagues in the legislature, saying lawmakers should have done more given the state's budget surplus, projected to be around $7 billion. In many ways, Republicans in the legislature have failed to meet this historic moment. They sent the budget back to my desk without making critical investments in key areas that they know and have acknowledged are essential to the success of our state. And they did so while providing no real justifications, any kind of substantive debate, or any meaningful alternative. That decision is, to put it simply, is an abdication of duty. Republicans had harsh words themselves in response to Evers's vetoes. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said in a statement today that the removal of tax cuts of the top two brackets will provide hardly any tax relief for middle-class families. Republican Representative Mark Bourne, co-chair of the Joint Finance Committee, called the vetoes disappointing and reckless fiscal policy. With Governor Evers's signature, the budget for the next two years is in effect, and at least one resolution to a months-long political fight. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Tomorrow marks the 10-year anniversary of a train derailment and subsequent disaster in Quebec, Canada. That has one Watertown resident up north in remembrance of the tragedy and arguing for rail safety reform. 
WORT reporter Hiwan Lim has more. On July 6th, one decade ago, a train transporting crude oil derailed and exploded. The accident killed 47 people, destroyed most of the town of Lac Megantic in Quebec, Canada, and spilled crude oil into the Chaudière River. The cause of the disaster? A braking system failure. Tomorrow's 10-year anniversary of the disaster has one Watertown resident traveling north to advocate for change in rail safety regulations. Sarah Zarling is the founder of Citizens Acting for Rail Safety, and she's in Lac Megantic this week commemorating the 10th anniversary of the Lac Megantic derailment disaster. So Lac Megantic was 10 years ago. I'm here for the 10-year anniversary of that tragedy. There's still been, you know, all these years later, no real justice or changes in rail safety regulation. You know, how many close calls do we have to have? How many it could have been worse situations do we have to have before something is finally done to show that elected officials really do care about putting people's safety first. The environmental effects of the disaster can still be felt to this day, with Quebec's Environment Department said to study the rehabilitation of the river. The most recent report by the Environmental Department from 2017 found that fish caught at the Chaudière showed more deformities and anomalies than anywhere else in the province. However, the study also stated that sediments in the lake and river had low concentrations of pollutants and, quote, did not warrant decontamination efforts, end quote. Starling's trip is sponsored by Wisconsin Environmental Initiative, or WEI, a local environmental nonprofit. Co-founder and director John Imes says Zarling is the perfect person to lead the way for rail safety. We met Sarah at a climate event that we did in partnership with WISPolitics down in Milwaukee at the Discovery Center in March. And we're just we're really impressed with her as a as an organizer, as a as a presenter, and as a researcher. And very passionate about these issues. Dealt with it firsthand. And so, uh, to her credit, uh, she's doing this work. You know, activists don't always have the resources to participate directly. So we felt, as an organization, we're in a position where we can help someone that's very passionate about an issue that we care about. The anniversary comes just after a Canadian Pacific train derailed in Reeseville on Tuesday. No one reported injuries, and the train was not carrying any hazardous material, according to Dodge County Sheriff Dale Schmidt. According to data from the Federal Railroad Administration, this is only one of nine other derailments in Wisconsin this year. According to Zarling, The Canadian Pacific Rail Line there in Reeseville is the same one that runs through Watertown, where there was the derailment in November of 2015. And it's actually Canadian Pacific that runs through Lac Megantic here as well. So we just, we don't need to keep rolling the dice with these situations that it could be worse and we need safer rail safety regulations now. Zarling has advocated for the Bipartisan Railway Safety Act of 2023, which was introduced in the U.S. Senate in March. That bill was prompted by another disaster, this time in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this year. That derailment and subsequent evacuation prompted national headlines and renewed concerns over rail safety. That bill would address safety requirements for transport of hazardous materials, as well hold railway companies accountable. I'm says that the bill is meant to make rail companies more communicative with local communities. Part of the bill is about right to know, and that local emergency response officials at the state level and the local level know when these trains are coming through, what their cargo is, and can plan accordingly to assess the risks and make sure that we're properly ready to respond if an accident uh, does happen. The Railway Safety Act of 2023 is still in the Senate's Commerce and Transportation Committee and has not yet received a vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Hiwan Lim. 
The time is now 621, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled public universities cannot use affirmative action to enroll students of color. In a 6-3 to three ruling, the justices said that affirmative action violated our, quote, colorblind constitution, end quote. 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Anuj Desai, Volcom Bascom Professor of Law at the UW Law School, to try to make sense of the ruling. Let's start with the affirmative action decision. Chief Justice John Roberts pointed to a 2003 Supreme Court decision that upheld affirmative action in which Sandra Day O'Connor stated there would come a day when affirmative action would have to end. Roberts said that time has now come. Is the Supreme Court saying that racism no longer exists? I I don't think they're saying racism no longer exists, but I think they have an aspiration and they're trying to incorporate that aspiration into the law. And so part of what you see is a sense that the way to end racism is for the government to be itself colorblind, as you said in the in, in the intro. And uh, obviously, um, there are a lot of people who disagree with that way to end racism or to reduce racism, let's say. But but I think the core is an attempt at at an aspiration of a colorblind world. And so the idea is to incorporate the colorblind aspects of the constant colorblind into the law, I guess. Now, Justice Ketanji Brown called the majority decision, quote, let them eat cake obliviousness. What does she mean by that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, it, it goes really to the first question you just asked. I think her response is that the attempt to make the government and institutions like Harvard colorblind is a, in essence, a refusal to see that the world we actually live in is racist. I mean, the the let them eat cake, you probably recognize as a reference to the um, statement made in the context of the French Revolution. And the idea was that let the peasants eat cake. But of course, the peasants don't have cake, couldn't eat cake, they couldn't even eat bread. And that was part of the problem. And so I think the idea is that the, you know, there are a lot of people who don't have. And the court is starting on this, I don't want to say assumption, but the way I think she would say assumption that, you know, the world is, in fact, colorblind. And so um, and so we should keep Harvard colorblind and keep the UNC colorblind and keep uh, all um, all other educational institutions colorblind. Now, one of the really curious things about this affirmative action decision is that the court sort of left an opening to still allow affirmative action programs to exist in military academies. What are we to make of that? That's correct. Yeah. I I think that was an attempt to, A, push off a decision about that. The Solicitor General on behalf of the United States 
had um, made some pretty strong arguments for why the academies should be able to engage in affirmative action, particularly the potential for a disparity between the officer corps and the fighting corps in racial makeup. And, and, you know, she tied it to the potential for, you know, national security implications. And so I think the court really didn't want to go down that road. And so created, as you said, this carve out. One of the other things that, that's sort of come up in this discussion of affirmative action is the uh, practice of legacy admissions, where colleges give preferences to the very privileged and predominantly white relatives of former alumni. Did the court address that issue in any way? It's a great question, Brian. And I think it goes to what we'll see going forward. Uh, some groups have um, just on uh, July 3rd filed a civil rights complaint with the Department, the United States Department of Education against Harvard based on its legacy admissions, based on, in, in essence, the, the argument you're just making, that, that there's sort of a disparate impact to including and, and con- caring about legacy admissions, and that disparate impact favors favors whites. And, you know, we'll see what happens um, with that kind of argument. But the one thing I should say is obviously nothing about the decision prevents schools from changing other aspects of their policies, you know, to cushion the blow, so to speak, of of this decision, right? So it, it is it is true that the, the court has um, said that the, you know, what for I think the la- most of the last 50 years they've sort of said was okay, uh, have said it's not okay. On the other hand, uh, I, I do think there is so much commitment on the part of the vast majority of these institutions. And, you know, just to make sure that your listeners are aware, the only institutions that are issue here are public institutions and or institutions that receive federal funds that are selective, right? You know, non-selective institutions, you know, Madison College here in Madison, you know, don't uh, have an admissions policy that is affected by race in any way, shape or form. Um, But yes, you're right. There are policies like the legacy policy. They refer to this um, abbreviation. I think it's ADLS, ADLC, I believe it is, but legacies, athletes, athletes, legacies, donors, and uh, children of faculty and staff. And those are four categories of people who also get preferences in admissions, at least at Harvard. I don't know whether you know, other schools have all the exact same policies. And in each case, overall, they, those, those policies um, favor, favor, favor whites. And so you know, it may be that a number of schools uh, change other aspects of their policies, their admissions policies, to in response to this decision, even though they're not required to, but in part because of the, the commitment that I think a lot of these institutions have to to continuing to um, to have diverse classes.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WART. I'm your host, Matthew Thompson, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us. On Wednesdays this month, the 6 p.m. local news is airing a special series produced by Rooted, a Dane County nonprofit committed to collaborations rooted in food, land, and learning. The series, titled Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations, features community garden elders of color in Wisconsin. In our first edition, which you can find online in English and Spanish, we'll hear community garden elders from South Madison share their stories of farming, food, and goals for gardening. Here are Rooted producers Nicholas Leet and Newt Howe. Me gusta mucho los lirios, los campanitas, esos que florían. I really like lilies, morning glories, flowering plants, and I also like tomatoes and other vegetables. Cosas de verdura. This is Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations, honoring Wisconsin elders of color sharing their histories, their journeys, and how they are passing on their traditions to new generations. A limited-time feature produced by Rooted and WORT. A note about vegetables. The names used to refer to some vegetables are given to them by the local communities that grow them and often do not have a specific translation in English. Things like pipichas and papalos, we will refer to them in the original language. When possible, we or the garden elders themselves will do our best to describe the vegetables in the interpretation. Today, we hear from Doña Juana and Lourdes Perez, who we talked with on May 20th, 2022. Mi nombre es Doña Juana. Tengo una parcela en Madison. My name is Doña Juana, and I have a garden plot in Madison. So, what is your history with gardening? I've always liked gardening since I was in my hometown. I garden and I really like plants very much. So I came here and I continued gardening here. I like it here too. I like the harvest when it comes. My hometown is San Bernardino close to Atlisco. I used to grow plants at my house there in just a small area, a few plants in planters, but I liked it very much. And I heard that here there was space, more space to grow. And so here I share space with Doña Lourdes and I am still growing. So do you want to share your story of um, back in Mexico? Hola, mi nombre es Lourdes Pérez. Yo soy originaria de Oaxaca, México. Y a mí me gustaría compartir... My name is Lourdes Pérez. I'm originally from Oaxaca, México. And I would like to share my story as well. For us, there I like to help my dad with farming. We planted and harvested tomatoes, tomatillos, jalapeños. We harvest chili peppers there, a chile called chile tabiche, and water chile. It is like a yellow pepper. We also harvest watermelons, melon, pipichas. All the vegetables that you can get there, you can get here. But there especially, we have watermelon and melon that yield better. Because here in the United States, there isn't enough time to harvest it. It takes too long to grow. But yes, tomatoes, tomatillos, green beans, and zucchinis. 
We harvest that with my dad. I really enjoyed it. Son las chiquines y a mí me gustaba mucho cosechar. Yo también trabajaba con los toros. Trabajábamos la tierra porque allá nosotros lo trabajamos. I also work with the oxen to till the soil. We will work the soil with a plow and the oxen. We will jolk the oxen, cover their eyes with a blind, strap them in, and attach the plow to work the land. Because there, there were no tractors, no machinery. But here, we have many opportunities. Here, we are better organized. We wish it was like that in Mexico, to be doing well like here. Así quisiéramos que estuviera en México también para nosotros estar bien como acá. And uh, when, when and how did you start to have a plot here in Madison? Aquí en Madison yo empecé la parcela por parte de la escuela. Here in Madison I got my plot through the school. I was walking by and I saw people planting here in 2013. And from there I started planting here in this garden. Now it's been nine years I have been gardening here in this garden. And I like it. I have really liked it. More than anything because it really helps these days. When you have a lot of tomatoes, you can bag them, save them to use later. You can freeze vegetables and use them later. Yeah, I was in fourth grade and... And they sent like a waiver. Yes, I knew about from them. They were the ones that first came with their teachers to see the plants. They planted strawberries and everything, and the teachers brought them to harvest the strawberries, to harvest the vegetables. And from that, I learned about the organization of the garden. So how did you, how did you arrive here? How did you end up here in Dane County? Well, I came here with my children uh, about 10 years ago now. I came to this neighborhood. And I saw that they were giving out plots, so I asked here my friend Doña Lourdes to help me apply for one, and she helped me. And I am grateful that she helped me and here I am harvesting. So you introduced Doña Juana to the garden then? Yes, I helped her out. Of the two plots I had, I gave one plot to her. I shared it with her so she could harvest the vegetables, the ones that she likes. Tomatoes, tomatillos, chiles, papalos. The papalos are very important for her. She likes to plant them. They're important for her people, for their tradition. They're good to make tortas, quesadillas, everything. Would you want to talk about the papalos? Yes, I do really like papalos for the semitas, uh, the Mexican semitas. They're a type of bread, sweet bread. They are so tasty with the greens. I'm glad she's here with us because she teaches us about plants that we don't know and what she uses them for, like alaches, turnips. Yes, well, we work with Doña Juana. It is a pleasure to work with Doña Juana, to spend time with her, because we're neighbors here. We share our time together. We work together. And working as a team, it's better. 
y trabajando juntos en equipo es mejor. And does your daughter, do your children do much gardening with you? No, no. No, ellos casi más no. No más yo el que me gusta. No. Ellos menos. No, it's, it's just me. Um, they, they don't do it so much. I mean, sometimes they would like it, but they are busy working. pero como también trabaja. They don't eat it. No, no lo comen o... Yes, sometimes, yes, they do come and see me and, and they help with watering and, and they like it. Um, and it's good when they like it when the harvest comes. They do eat it. Sí, sí, lo Sí. And can you describe what you have here? Aquí tengo cilantro, cebollas, verdolagas. Here I have cilantro, onion, purslane, I have tomatoes, chamomile, and I have cloud flowers. Manzanilla, tengo este flor de nove. Están haciendo los pepinos, los chícharos, sandía. We have cucumbers coming up, peas, watermelon squash, zucchinis, and beans too. Y frijoles también, pero... Those are flowers that we grow in Oaxaca. We call them penumbras. And then there are those nabos. It's something like turnip greens. There are a lot of turnips in Oaxaca, a lot. That's why we grow them here. In Querétaro, they are common too. I also started eating them more because of my husband. He's from Querétaro, and they eat a lot of nabos there, too. My mother-in-law says it's meat without bones. You boil them, and you can make tacos with them. You add the salsa, and it's really good. Radishes. I planted them here. I planted beans here, zucchini, I also planted alaches. Alaches are also other kind of green. Well, in my town, uh, we would eat them. Here, I don't know. I think we don't. You don't have alaches here. I just planted some, but who knows if they will come up. Do you want to talk about uh, what alaches are? Have you eaten them? ¿Has comido estas? Apparently. <laughs> the herbs that Abuelita Francisca boiled that you ate with April, that you say they were very good when you eat them, the alaches? Have the seeds come up yet? Or? No, who knows? I, I don't know. They just gave some to me and I scattered them. But who knows if they're going to come up or not because I just planted them. Oh, right, right. My alaches seems like Seems like they're coming up, aren't they? I planted alaches, beans, cilantro, zucchini, 
pápalo, onion, cilantro, and peas. That's all I've planted. It's all I've planted for now. All right. Chilacayote squash. How do you eat the chile cayote? Yo lo, yo lo hago en atole, casi en azúcar. I make it into an atole, a hot drink with sugar. I make it like that and I really like it. And you? How do you do it? ¿Cómo lo haces? We make agua de chilacayote, chilacayote water. We boil the chilacayote, and once it's cooked through the water, we take off the skin, blend the chilacayote with the seeds still in. Then we add pineapple, cinnamon, and piloncillo. It is a block of dry cane sugar, and it's very delicious. That's how we have it in Oaxaca. We beat it, grind it, remove the skin, and then we mix it all in a blender. If you go to Oaxaca, Abuelita is going to make you that water. Were there any challenges with growing here compared to growing in Mexico? No, yo aquí también me gusta ya es lo mismo porque aquí hay más No, um, I, I, it is the same because here there is more space, there's more land, a lot of land and the land is very pretty, very beautiful and it yields really well. También sale mucho la cosecha. Sí. Lo que pasa que nosotros acá en Estados Unidos Aquí es más fácil en Estados Unidos y en México es más difícil. Porque allá tiene uno que invertir mucho dinero. Yes, the thing is that for us here in the United States, it's easier. And in Mexico, it's more difficult. Because there you have to invest a lot of money in insecticides, in fertilizers. There you have to spend a lot of money. And here we don't use money for that. Here we just spend the money if we buy the plants. We do use money for that. But if we plant our own seeds, we don't have to spend any money. We don't have to do more than spend our time to care for the plants. If we germinate the seeds ourselves, we don't spend money in anything else. That is what we can do here. Yes, that's right. That's, that's what we like or why we like it in here. Exactly. Because there is clean water and there is possibility. Rooted in Land, Preserving Through Generations is a project of Rooted Wisconsin and WORT, funded in part by a grant from Wisconsin Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities in the state of Wisconsin. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this project do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Rooted, or WORT. Recorded in English by Maria Clara Ruiz Zapata and by me, Elsa Maria Cárdenas Canales. We go now to the first week of July in the late 1960s. When Independence Day festivities became political, vandals threatened the Monona Causeway, and Mifflin looked to the sky for Bob Dylan. Stu Levitan tells the tales on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s 
the first week of July, the latter years of the decade. On a balmy 4th of July 1965, a crowd of about 60,000 packs Vilas Park for the 14th annual Lions Club fireworks display. Three days later, UW students with their own sense of what freedom means staged the era's first conservative political demonstration here, supporting anti-union right-to-work laws. The campus chapter of Young Americans for Freedom pickets the rededication ceremony for the state capitol in support of the federal law which allows states to enact such statutes, Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act. As Governor Warren Knowles, the four other statewide elected officials, and all legislators assemble, YAF President David Keene and about a dozen YAF activists hand out a thousand leaflets in only two hours, denouncing efforts by congressional Democrats to repeal 14B. In 1966, a summer of vandalism besets construction of the Monona Causeway, including destruction of $2,000 worth of sensitive gauges used to measure when fill is compacted enough for further construction. In the construction area nearest downtown, swimmers and boaters have also broken down some of the diking material used to prevent erosion of the road that's already there. On July 1st, the city finally posts a notice. Please don't knock this dike down because literally you could be instrumental in washing away part of the causeway. The highway, long touted as the vital link between downtown and the southwest, is already a year behind schedule and a million dollars over budget. Also on the 1st, South Madison native Richard Harris, 29, becomes director of the South Madison Neighborhood Center. Harris, UW class of 1961, has a master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois and has worked for the Hyde Park Neighborhood House and the Illinois Youth Commission. On the 4th, the Committee to End the War in Vietnam tries to mix protest with patriotism in a two-pronged action under new co-chairs Robin David and Lowell Bergman. While a group of about 15 stages a 24-hour fast on the Memorial Library Mall, graduate student Walter Lippmann and a small group hand out and sell anti-war pamphlets in Vilas Park until a policeman orders them to stop. He claims, incorrectly, that they need a peddler's permit. Then a handful of high school students heckle the protesters, and a parks worker who claims to be an army veteran threatens to tip over the table where their literature is displayed. Finally, a Madison police sergeant on the scene says their presence is creating a dangerous disturbance and orders them to leave. UW Chancellor Robin Fleming challenges police priorities, writing Mayor Otto Feske that the officer's responsibility was, quote, to quell any disturbance rather than stop the distribution of this literature, which may have been unpopular with some of the people at the park. But Feske, whose Bells for Independence proclamation calling for church bells to chime during the afternoon was largely ignored, rejects the criticism. Tension was building toward a possible riot, he says, praising the police for, quote, fulfilling their sworn duty to preserve the peace. No such tension is evident that night, as 60,000 packed the park for the 15th annual Lions Club fireworks display. The council later enacts an ordinance prohibiting the sale, but not the free distribution, of literature in city parks. 
And in an ironic bit of counter-programming, the Dane County Arena celebrates the 4th by welcoming British Invasion pop stars the Dave Clark Five for what the Capital Times snidely calls, quote, a throbbing, clashing, roaring performance. Earlier in the day, the group was welcomed to the Madison Municipal Airport by Mayor Feske and about 500 very excited young girls. 1967 also sees a mix of protest and traditional patriotism. At Vilas Park, Zach Burke's so-called open arts group performs a play which praises North Vietnamese Premier Ho Chi Minh as, quote, the George Washington of Vietnam, a comparison the largely student audience endorses. But a handful of anti-war activists who hand out literature at Westmoreland Park have a tougher time, as they're challenged by young teens and accosted by some adults. As tempers flare, the protesters seek support from the lone policeman present. Repeating recent history, he advises them to leave. And they do. It's likely this is the last year the Lions Club will be able to use Vilas Park for its patriotic pyrotechnics. Henry Vilas Zoo director Alvy Nelson says several animals, especially llamas and zebras, were so stressed by the explosions they went into shock and may die. The Madison Parks Commission had initially denied the permit out of just that concern, but later relented. And the Madison Public Schools enters a new era as the Board of Education votes 4-3 to three to name West High School Principal Douglas Ritchie the new superintendent. Mrs. Ruth B. Doyle, who cast the only vote against Ritchie's appointment as principal in 1964, leads the opposition, saying Madison is too big and complex to be a starter district for a first-time superintendent. And she blasts the board's hiring process as haphazard and without any established criteria. On July 1, 1968, McDonald's opens near the corner of Lake and State Streets, falsely advertising the Madison franchise as its first with indoor seating. It is, in fact, the first walk-in franchise with no parking. Plenty of parking at Warner Park, as the Lions Club takes its Independence fireworks display to the city's north side, where about 70,000 enjoy the festivities. Activists follow with literature members of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, as well as a group supporting Republican New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller for president. There are no reported disturbances involving either group. It's a unique 4th of July 1969 downtown, as about 200 residents of the Mifflin neighborhood gather to wait the purported appearance of Bob Dylan. According to the Pterodactyl Transit Company, the folk rock legend was to arrive by helicopter and sing a few songs on the steps of the Mifflin Community Co-op. He doesn't. On July 7th, in the first action by a local chapter following the chaotic National Students for a Democratic Society conference in Chicago earlier this month, Madison SDS votes by 66 to 35 to stay neutral in the struggle for control between the National Office Revolutionary Youth Movement faction, headed by Mark Rudd, Bernadette Dorn, Bill Ayers, and others, and the Progressive Labor Party Worker Student Alliance group from Boston. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, independent-celebrating WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday nights. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Hiwan Lim. Special thanks to feature contributors Nicholas Leet, New Tao, and Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Matthew Thompson. Listen to this newscast anytime by subscribing to the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or your other podcast platform of choice. Up next is a live edition of Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.